Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us today to answer your questions, your landscape and gardening questions. Of course, the last Saturday of every month, we like to go to the mailbag, the mailbox, the inbox, the message box on Facebook, wherever you have been sending questions, we go and collect so that we can bring them to the program, that you be a, become a part of the program by asking a specific question, something that is going on in your landscape. I'm afraid that if there's any questions about dry soil, we can't get to them because that would take all day. We have had so much dry weather. Of course, it's been hot. It is summertime. It's feeling like it at least. And with that in mind, we are going to be answering your questions. I don't think we have any questions today about dry soil but I bet if we did that question would apply to most all of us but there are plenty of things so if you you know it's just like we used to say in high school your teacher said there are no such thing as silly questions all questions are important and most likely the question you have the person beside you is wondering the same thing So let's go to high school and remind ourselves that all questions are important. And yes, most likely, if you have a question, someone else is asking the same thing or having a similar problem. I know that we are going to answer a quick question. Well, it may not necessarily be too quick. We will answer a question about Japanese beetles. And I guarantee you that the person who asked the question about Japanese beetles today is not the only person suffering with them. And so we're going to talk about techniques to, uh, <laughs> well, to eliminate, but also to maybe prevent in the future having Japanese beetle problem. And of course, we're also going to be looking here. Let's see. We're going to be talking about some house plants repotting. That's going to be a big thing because, you know, house plants, they do grow. They continue to grow. And as they continue to grow, do you leave them in the same container? Do you leave them in the same soil? Maybe, maybe not. We will get to that. And so we do have a good list of questions here for today. If you are wondering how you can, maybe you've just joined us for the program for the very first time, um, you can find us online at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can locate our contact us page. And there, of course, you can drop your question. But of course... While you're at NewSouthernGarden.com, you can check out every episode, every uh, show that we've ever had here on New Southern Garden. It's right there, banked away for your listening pleasure and, of course, for your horticultural endeavors and uh, encouraging your uh, gardening mind to grow. 
Of course, you can find the program on most of your podcasting apps on your device and, of course, Facebook and Instagram where some folks have sent us pictures to go with their questions so we can get a good look at what's going on. I know last month we had a, a video that someone sent in of a site uh, of their landscape and was asking about some ground cover problems and whatnot. And those do come in handy, in particular when there's something you got to show. You know, talking about high school, remember in high school uh, literature class, it was all about writing, showing, not telling. Show people what you got rather than telling them what you got. It's more enjoyable. And so with that in mind, you can check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com, Facebook and Instagram. We are there. So I suppose we should go ahead and jump into today's questions because that's what we're here for. We are here to answer your questions on the last Saturday of the month. This is our Q&A week. So let's go to Betsy. Betsy writes about the night blooming cirrus, which is a plant. Uh, Her question is how and when to repot and what type of soil. Thanks. All right. So night blooming cirrus. Now, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show. I think we did. We did do a, some houseplant programs. Um, I think it was over a year ago or so. And we did uh, several weeks in a row about houseplants and care. Of course, we weren't too specific. But when we talk about specifically the night-blooming cirrus, the night-blooming cirrus, let me go ahead for folks who don't uh, know this plant. Betsy does. She's got one. But other than Betsy... Um, the night-blooming cirrus is a tropical plant. We would consider it tropical based on where we live here in the southeast. They, they don't make it through winter. They can handle a decent amount of cold, but they're not going to be very hardy okay, over winter in the landscape. So we definitely are going to treat it like a house plant, letting it stay outside in our warm summer, but bringing it into at least a crawl space, at least a crawl space with maybe some window light over winter. Now, this night-blooming cirrus has these very long leaves that are stem-like, and they connect to each other. As a matter of fact, most of us probably are familiar with the Christmas cactus or Easter cactus. Those cactus are very closely related to the night-blooming cirrus. So they have a very similar structure. The leaves... Uh, well, leaf stem material, it's sort of this quasi area uh, of distinction. They, they are connected to each other from end to end. And so they do kind of climb up and crawl up. If they grew outside, they would sort of wrap around trees and small growing branches and whatnot. And they can spill over that way. But in the house, we can do some pruning to not keep them crawling up the side of the wall. They don't wrap or vine around anything, really. They just sort of sprawl, hang over because their they're, uh, stems and stem-like leaves or leaf-like stems are quite long and lanky. And it's from these stems that a blooming shoot will also be formed. Now, as the name suggests, the night-blooming cirrus does bloom at nighttime in particular. You can watch the flower open after the sun is starting to set. Later in the day, it begins to open, and overnight, it starts to open. Then by in the morning, you've got this big, bright flower. Now, the flower stays open for about a day or so. We do grow this one at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Uh, Really easy to grow. It is related, like I said, to the Christmas Easter cactuses. And that puts this plant into this uh, category of cactus, but forest cactus. 
All right, so there's two main groups of cactus, particularly the desert cactus, which are what we normally think of when we think of cactus. We think of the desert cactus growing out in the hot, full sun, and dry conditions. Forest cactus, they like the hot, dry, particularly, conditions, but they don't like the sunny conditions. They like the shade. So forest cactus can handle drought. They can handle uh, not being watered regularly. However, they do need a bit of shade. So when you're growing these night blooming cirrus, be sure to put them onto a low-lit patio. Now, that means you can have bright, sunny light, but not direct light okay sometimes it's, it's, and I, we have experienced this at the nursery if we leave these uh, night blooming cirrus in the direct sun they start to turn yellow and maybe blacken and, and just get spotty these almost like baked really is like a baked looking plant like a baked potato and baked bloom a, a baked night blooming cirrus it's terrible so be sure that they get outside during the summer but they don't need to sit in bright sun all day. Like I said, they can handle it, but they just get that baked, anemic look. Then, in the wintertime, bring them in, and you will see blossoms. You will have blossoms on this plant pretty much year-round. Um, we've noticed heavy blossoms in the spring in our, in our nursery conditions. Uh, of course, they don't come in and out of a house, uh, but they do stay outside in a protected, warm area over winter. And they get way more light than you would in a house over winter, so that may change their blooming pattern. But the real question here that Betsy has is how to repot, when to repot, and what type of soil to use on these night-blooming cirrus. So let's talk about the when first. I don't want to necessarily go in order there. Let's talk about when, because when is, I would say, with any house plant, the best time to repot it is when the plant needs it. If the plant needs it in the middle of winter, and a lot of people would say that late winter or early spring is the best time to replant, repot a house plants, I would say go ahead and do it when the plant needs it. Because you don't want those roots to be restricted for an extended period of time. And that's what uh, potting up helps to prevent. It allows new roots to be formed in new soil. With that being said, even though a lot of folks may say, and you may find it in the books and the textbooks, that the best time to repot houseplants is in the spring, it's very true that roots are going to flush and grow very quickly in the spring, but roots are always growing. Roots are growing in the winter, they're growing in the summer, they're growing in the fall, they're growing in the spring. They do grow faster in the warmer season than the cooler season, but if your plant needs to be repotted, for heaven's sakes, for heaven's sakes, Betsy, repot it. <laughs> repot it right away. Go ahead and do it now. Now's a fine time. Again, that night blooming cirrus can be repotted and remain out on a shady patio under some trees throughout the summer. That will allow being in this indirect outdoor environment will allow it to store up plenty of nutrition and energy to bloom well next year. Now, the next question is how to do this. All right, so with your night blooming cirrus, they're actually very responsive to any kind of root pruning. So if you open, if you take it out of its existing pot and you see that there's a lot of roots kind of bound and circled, go ahead and give them just a few slices with a sharp blade. 
Uh, ideally, we would not sit there with our fingers and rip those root balls apart. This goes with any containerized or potted plant. We don't want to damage the root system to the extent of, oh my goodness, will it recover? We want to just coax it and encourage that root ball um, if there are roots that are growing encircling the uh, pot. We do want to give them just a few one-inch slices from four to six one-inch slices around the extremity of that pot. And then, Betsy, you can go ahead and place that into the new pot. I would make sure that the pot is at least two to four inches wider than the old pot because that's the idea is to increase Increase the size of your pot because your plant is growing. Now, the type of soil uh, you ask about here, I would say that any kind of potting mix would be sufficient. However, you may do a 50% potting mix that's peat, ba- peat moss based with uh, perlite, and you may cut that in, in half, uh, rather uh, use equal part potting mix with equal part soil conditioner. So 50% soil conditioner. uh, potting mix, and that way you will increase the drainage that this particular pot will be able to give you. Because remember, the night-blooming cereus needs a little extra drainage. It doesn't love wet feet. It's not a boggy plant. It does like the shade, but it likes a dry shade. So be sure to give whatever kind of soil. A cactus mix potting soil would probably be sufficient. Sometimes they have a good bit of vermiculite. But I will say that we have grown the night blooming cirrus in a number, in a, in a wide selection of different kinds of soils from straight conditioner, soil conditioner, uh, all the way to some of the higher priced potting mixes, and they have responded well. They have had no major issues. Now, the night blooming cirrus, I will say that um, before we have to go to break, that a customer of ours had sent us a great slow motion video of this night blooming cirrus opening at nighttime. So everything in the background is dark, but this brilliant white flower is opening up. It was one of our plants that they purchased and they were able to use, I guess, with some of these, you know, uh, fancy phones and whatnot. They were able to use uh, a slow-mo feature or whatever, or time lapse. It's not slow-mo, it's time lapse. So I guess that camera was taking these little bursts of uh, images. I need to post that. I have not posted that on our social media yet. But since, uh, Betsy, we appreciate your question about Night Blooming Cirrus. Since you posted that, that that reminded me to uh, show y'all this Night Blooming Cirrus in slow motion. Well, it's sped up, actually. It's, it's, it's faster. You can see it happen in just a few seconds, even though it takes uh, maybe several hours. All right, when we get back from this break, more of your questions. Thanks again to Betsy and her Night Blooming Cirrus. We will be back in just a second. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. 
Well, good morning, gang. Welcome back to New Southern Garden. We are answering your questions today because even though throughout the rest of the month, we, we love to give you ideas and inspiration to, uh, to, to maybe just bring some topics to the forefront that you've never thought about, we do want to help you specifically in your landscape. So if you have a situation you have a situation where something is going wrong something is not working well feel free to send us a question at newsoutherngarden.com and you can send it to us on facebook and instagram all of those places if you want to attach a video or a picture sometimes in this business that's exactly what it takes Uh, so with that in mind we were just wrapping up a discussion about betsy's night blooming cirrus it sounds like there's no major issue going on with the plant because really, and as Betsy can probably attest to, they're fairly easy plants. But it, what happens is they grow, and we need to expand their growing soil. So her question was all about how and when and what kind of soil to use when repotting them. So if you missed any of that, of course, you can check out this program online in a few short hours at NewSouthernGarden.com. But in other news, in another direction, Stephanie has sent us a question, and it's entitled, seeds or plants stephanie says hello i've been enjoying the podcast from central arkansas well thanks for listening stephanie all the way out in arkansas Uh, i have a large yard i'd like to plant in the naturalistic style i'm writing to ask if it is better to plant seeds or plants for large gardens or mass planting If seeds, should they be germinated before planting? I appreciate you and hope to hear my questions answered in a show sometime or by email. I'm not picky. Well, thank you, she says. And thank you, Stephanie. We do appreciate that. Um, I will start off by saying that I see exactly what you're going for. Um, You are trying to create large sections of your uh, landscape in a naturalistic style, uh, sort of, sort of, it's become a very popular way of growing perennial plants in particular. Uh, and, of course, it's not really anything old. Uh, we say it's a, a new way of planting, maybe. But it's really taking from nature, looking particularly to those natural areas, right? Meadows and prairies where things grow wild. Now, we may be using a large number of different kinds of plants, and we may be mixing plants that would never grow naturally, quote-unquote naturally. It's a naturalistic style, but some of these plants may never grow with each other in nature. We may use some plants that are from the American prairie. We may use some plants uh, that are from Europe. We may use some plants that are from Asia and mix them together, and they could create this very naturalistic planting, but really those plants would never grow together in a natural situation. That's exactly what gardening is. But it sounds like, Stephanie, you, you're not looking for any individual plants to talk about, which may work well. It sounds like the main question is, should you plant this naturalistic garden style from seeds? Uh, should you use transplants? And I would say it may depend on the types of plants that you'd like to work with. Okay, so in many situations, planting from seed is perfectly all right. And planting seed in situ, in situ is the word for in place. 
saying that you are preparing the the garden soil. You are maybe tilling it to eradicate weeds, soften the soil, add organic matter, uh, two inches of organic matter like compost, soil conditioner. That will help create a great seeding base or uh, seeding substrate, if you will. So it may depend on the types of plants that you want to grow, the actual species. Now, one thing when we talk about planting uh, from seeds is you want to do a little bit of research. Once you make a list or start making a list of plants that you want to use in your naturalistic garden, um, keep a running list and keep notes. Keep as many detailed notes about certain plants as you can because you're going to find that certain plants can germinate very easily from seeds. And some may not germinate very easy from seeds. Some may be more difficult. There are a couple of things we really are concerned with when we talk about growing plants from seeds. You see, a seed is a living organism. It's a living organism. It's very much alive. But the seed itself is sort of in this suspended state of growth. And we call that dormancy. Seed dormancy. So the idea is that the the mother plant, when it's producing these offsprings that we call seeds, it sort of gives this hormonal change uh, or signals to a seed that it should slow down and wait until a certain condition is met. Because you may not want these seedlings, or the plant may not really want these seedlings to just all of a sudden germinate, Because if it's near the end of the season and the seedlings germinate, well, you may have a frost near the end of the season. And there goes your new babies. They get wiped out. And so many seeds have to or do undergo this phenomenon we call dormancy, where the seed waits. And it may have to wait for cold weather to pass. Uh, It may have to wait for a certain amount of moisture. It may actually need to be uh, scratched a little bit. And I'll tell you uh, why it would have to be scratched. So let's go ahead and talk about that. So if, if, a, if a seedling or if a seed needs to break its dormancy and get growing, it may have to wait through winter. So it may have a certain number of uh, cold, went, cold, cold nights before temperatures rise in spring and it can germinate. We call that period of cold weather that is needed to break seed dormancy stratification, which is a terrible long term, I know, but stratification, I remember it like the stratosphere, which is in the atmosphere. The stratosphere, meaning that that seed has to undergo a cold spell. Usually it can vary depending on what kind of seed you're growing, but a stratification may have to be uh, three months. A nice winter weather that is three months long may be enough for that seed to break dormancy. Then the other concern we talked about was uh, being scratched or some kind of abrasion on the seed. And this is called scarification. Scarification. So stratification is where the seedling or the seed has to go through cold weather. Scarification is where the seed coat of the seedling needs to be scarred. Or some people call it scarification. I like to use the word scar because that means we either scratch or do something physical to the seed coat uh, so that the seedling 
can then emerge from that seed coat. Now, in the wild, this happens a number of ways. Seeds could be dropped and scratched along the earth or along rocks, but it's usually done in the belly of birds or some creature. So if a a bird comes and eats some seeds from a plant, then those seeds go into the belly and they become the seed coat can sometimes be broken down by the acidic or the acids, the stomach acids, inside of that bird's body. It's the strangest thing in nature. But once that seed has been removed from the bird and it hits the soil, now that seed has been scarified, scarified, so that its seed coat is much thinner and it will be easier for the seedling to emerge. And so some of these things, Stephanie, may have to happen if you decide to plant some plants from seeds. So again, I'm going to answer uh, the rest of your question after this break, but I do want to say that it's probably not better or worse to plant what you're trying to plant, this naturalistic style from seed or from um plants, but it will be cheaper to purchase the seed. That is for sure. Definitely will be cheaper to purchase the seed and plant it out. But you do want to do your research. Depending on what plants you're growing, you want to make sure that you give them the appropriate planting time, sowing time, so that they, whether they need to be scarified or whether they need to be stratified, you can undergo those processes. Well, when we get back, we're going to talk more about Stephanie's question and hopefully get her on the right path to creating this naturalistic style of garden in her landscape in Arkansas. Hang on tight. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, today is all about your gardens on New Southern Garden because we are here on our Q&A week to go to the mailbag, go to the mailbox, check our inbox, message inbox. I don't know. They call it all kinds of things now because you have been sending us questions, whether it's through NewSouthernGarden.com or maybe Facebook and Instagram. And we want to be sure that we not only help you in your landscape with new ideas and and inspirations, but also very specific problems you may have. So already we've talked about potting up houseplants, particularly the night-blooming cirrus. And we're right in the middle of talking about a naturalistic style garden. And what's the best way to get that going? So Stephanie has been listening to the show online. Uh, on the podcasting apps in Central Arkansas, and she's been looking to uh, plant her large yard in that naturalistic style that's very popular now, and for good reason, because you can introduce grasses, blooming plants, maybe some evergreen things, and you can create this natural look like, like 
God had planted your front landscape or your back landscape. And of course, her questions come down to what is better uh, for these large gardens? Is it better to plant seeds or plants? Or she used the word mass planting. And we started the uh, question before the break, we started answering it with the, the fact that you could plant seeds. You could sow seeds to create this naturalistic garden style, no problem at all. As a matter of fact, one of the pros for doing that is that seeds are relatively cheap. When you start buying individual plants, you know, they may cost several dollars or more each, whereas seeds, you may get a pack of a hundred for five to ten dollars. Maybe even more, depends on the type of seed usually. But regardless, if you've got a very large project and you want to create sort of that naturalistic meadow or prairie feel, then yes, seeds are a great way to go. And of course, before the break, we did talk about one of the, the, the challenges to growing a large garden from seeds is that many seeds will need to be either stratified or scarified. They need some kind of treatment that breaks their seed dormancy so they can germinate. And I mentioned that to you today, Stephanie, because if you decide to do some of this planting, right now may not be an ideal time to start germinating things. But if your plants, whichever seeds you decide to grow, if your seeds need a certain amount of cool temperature, you may do a lot of your seeding in the fall time. So in just a few months when we start getting closer uh, to October, November, a time like that. And so many of our American prairie plants, coneflower, um, well, even the uh, butterfly weed, the butterfly milkweed, there are several plants that require that winter weather. So seeds are a great way to go with a large garden for sure, Stephanie. Um, but let's talk about some of the other sides as far as using plants. So of course you can go and purchase plants. You can find some online retailers actually who are selling plants uh, that may work for you. There's a Prairie Moon, Prairie Moon Nursery, uh, Prairie Moon Nursery and Seeds. I don't know if you Google Prairie Moon, you will find all kinds of seeds and also plants. And they actually start these very small plants in little plugs, little trays, uh, or rather large trays that are just rows and rows of tiny plants. And they're pre-germinated, if you will. Some of these may have been grown from seeds, some may be grown from cuttings, and so they've already got roots. They're a much bigger plant than your tiny little seedlings would be. But that does come with a cost, so it starts to add up as far as the budget goes. Seeds are very budget-friendly plants they're on the pricier side of things with that being said though if you want to get started in some of your naturalistic garden planting seeds right now may not be an ideal time depending on the type of seed you want to grow but if you can source some of the plants now is an okay time to plant as long as you can make sure that the plants don't dry out if you can irrigate and make sure they, they stay watered, they will grow a strong, fast root system over summer, and they will prepare themselves for a wonderful fall later on. But with that being said, um, you do mention the word mass planting. 
And really, I would say that mass planting is going to be essential for you, Stephanie, since you have large area. You've got a large yard, as you mentioned. Be sure to group in mass certain kinds of plants. So if you plan to do coneflower, be sure to group swathes of coneflower. And if you want to do some ornamental grasses, group those in swathes. When we're talking about that naturalistic style of planting, I like to use the term organized chaos, okay? <laughs> because Mother Nature, or rather the way God plants out in the landscape, out in the wilderness, is all completely chaotic. It is, uh, there is no rhyme or reason to how things, well, there's a reason to why things happen, but nothing falls in a straight row. And if you look at your garden and want to mimic that, then we need to think about using large patches of things and also small little repeated patches of the same things. Because if we were to look at, um, uh, say you're driving along an interstate and you look at some of the wildflowers that have been planted and they've sort of just naturally started to change, you know, you will see repetition of Black-Eyed Susan and some of the annuals out there but you will also see large patches of the plants and small little patches. So you're trying to create, Stephanie, this, this tapestry. Trying to create this tapestry where we see re repetition, we see color, uh, we see texture. And of course, it makes sense when you look at it. It's not completely illegible. You can read what's going on, but at the same time, it is a bit chaotic. So that means we don't need straight rows. That means we don't need straight lines. We need curves. We need uh, sort of this matrix uh, underneath all of the big plants of little tiny grasses and tiny uh, little blooming plants. We need a mixture of things. So we need chaos, but it needs to be organized. So when you're going for that naturalistic style, plant, style planting, definitely using those mass plants Mass plantings is going to be most beneficial and attractive. Uh, let's see. So to summarize your question of what's the best way to establish this naturalistic kind of prairie or meadow planting, Stephanie, it really is not one best way. It may come down to what's best for you and your budget. Uh, is it easier to sow the seeds? Uh, one thing I just happened to remind myself of is when we sow seeds... Uh, on a large scale, remember, they will be followed with weed seed too. So we're going to have to be become very well versed, become very knowledgeable about what our seedlings should look like so we can be sure to let those, allow those true seedlings to grow and anything that's not, anything that's a weed seed, we may want to be picking those and destroying them. So it does take some, um, some research and skill when you're trying to identify good seed versus bad seed, right? <laughs> a weed seed versus a desirable seed that you're planting. Uh, but at the same rate, it can be fun and enjoyable. So uh, don't let, I mean, if it's a budget thing, go with seed. If you say, well, there are some plants I want to have that just they don't germinate well from seed maybe they're difficult then you may want to let somebody else do that for you go to your local plant nursery try some of these online uh, prairie meadow style planting nurseries and maybe purchase some of those as already baby plants and using a combination doing some things from seed but also doing some things from 
transplants and being sure to mass plant everything out. Be sure to do that because that is what's going to make it look good and stand out. Uh, see, I had one more thought, and I think I am losing it. Yeah, I'm really excited for you, Stephanie, and I hope that as you start developing this uh, garden space that you might share with us online some photographs, some pictures of what you're doing because th there is this uh, really modern uh, thought in gardening today uh, which is going for that naturalistic look. And there's one individual who really stands out. His name's Pete Oldoff, and he started doing this several decades ago. And really now we're starting to see people appreciate maybe the work he had been doing. But he, instead of creating, you know, a landscape that's just full of hedges and rows of, of shrubs and whatnot, it's as if you're walking through a meadow and a prairie. And like I said earlier, some of the plants that are growing beside each other never would see each other in nature, in the wild. But because, of course, we're creating gardens and garden spaces, this Pete Oldoff, he is creating spaces that are full of American plants mixed with European plants and Chinese plants, plants from all over. They really can put on a dramatic display. One of the other things we need to think about when we're trying to go for this naturalistic style, of course, is, uh, is thinking about the seasons. So, Stephanie, sort of back to your question, when you're deciding what plants to plant, be sure that you're thinking about striking characteristics throughout the seasons. So let's start with spring. Of course, in the spring, some plants are blooming and then they stop blooming. They may only bloom for a certain period of time in early spring. Uh, but maybe that plant will provide some foliage through summer. And if it does provide foliage through summer, maybe in the fall time, its foliage will be striking. It will have some great, beautiful fall color. Or then maybe over winter, it will have some dry seed pods that can you know, get some ice on them in the wintertime and just capture and twinkle the light uh, in the wintertime while things are frosty. I'll give you an example of one of these plants, and you may want to use this in your naturalistic planting, Stephanie. It's a native plant called Blue Star. Blue Star, also known as Amsonia, it does bloom this beautiful blue in the early part of the spring, but it has some great foliage too. So even though this blue star-shaped flower is short-lived, the plant is very long-lived, and it has these very thin, almost uh, spirea-like, stripey, uh, strippy, strippy, stripey, I don't know, leaves, very uh, stripe-like. And they stay green throughout most of the year, through the summer. But as soon as we get to fall, this really soft-textured foliage transitions from green to one of the brightest yellows, golden yellows that you will ever see. And then, of course, uh, you may have some of those twigs hang out over winter, which can get a little snow on them, get a little ice, and they can be beautiful in the winter. So something like Blue Star, even though it just blooms for a short period of time, don't think about just throwing it to the side. Uh, just because something blooms for a short period does not mean that it doesn't have something else to offer. So, Stephanie, when you're looking through a list of plants that work well, in this naturalistic style planting, be sure to select characteristics uh, 
that are going to give you some kind of interest in the garden all year long. We are talking about something for spring, something for summer, something for fall, and of course, uh, something for winter. Sometimes we do not think enough. We do not think enough about some of these characteristics. So, Stephanie, thank you for your question about naturalistic planting. Whether you decide to grow your plants from seed or from transplants, all you've got to do is give it a go. Eden Rose is encouraging you to build and grow that naturalistic style planting. Thank you for listening to New Southern Garden all the way in Arkansas. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about a terrible invader, the Japanese beetle. Hang on tight. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. Gang, today, of course, we are answering your questions, and we've had a great, a great group of questions this month. We talked about some house plants. We talked about growing a naturalistic, natural style garden, and now we've got a concern. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful question because James is not the only guy with this problem. James just happened to be the first one to send in a question about. Japanese beetles, of course. James can already identify that he knows what the problem is, uh, but he wants to know how he can control, dot, 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 (laughs) how he can control Japanese beetle in his landscape, in his garden. He does list in his question a certain number of plants. Roses, of course, are always on the top of Japanese beetles' taste buds. And I'll tell you this, folks, I've been, the first year I've grown, well, it's a type of soybean. It's called edamame, right? You may be familiar with edamame, but it's easy to grow. It's a great legume, a bean plant. And so they're growing great. But I tell you what, the Japanese beetles love them. I guess it sort of gives them a taste of home, if you will, because of course edamame is not from uh, North America, but from parts of Asia. And so the edamame has been consumed. I've noticed hibiscus at the nursery have been consumed. Of course, you can find me throughout the week at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch. But regardless, there's a number of plants that Japanese beetles are loving and they are going crazy for. Now, Japanese beetles something we deal with year after year and we have been for a long time because they came in and they have just set up shop. They've set up home here. They are immigrants from another country. But the trouble is they consume all of or many of our wonderful garden plants. Nobody asked for this problem, but we've still got to deal with it year after year. So when it comes to sort of alleviating some pressure that a pest might give us, 
the first thing we've got to do is consider its life cycle. Some insects, uh, you know, most insects, I should say, start out as an egg, and then they go through a series of transitions before they become an adult who can then lay a new egg. In the case of the uh, Japanese beetle, of course, we start with the egg, and then we go to sort of this uh, larval stage, which many of us would call grubs. Because if you've ever been digging outside, really any time of the year, but particularly over winter or late winter, early spring, and you start turning over your garden soil, and you see those white, gray sort of, uh, they may even have a, a... an end to them that is almost brown or uh, tan colored. Anyhow, you see those grubs, those worms under the earth. Well, that is the larval stage of a Japanese beetle because after the beetle transitions into that rigid exoskeleton, exoskeleton just means that these beetles have their skeleton on the outside, whereas humans, we have flesh on the outside and a skeleton on the inside. Uh, beetles are the reverse. They have their soft tissues on the inside of this exo or outer skeleton. And so that would be the adult phase. So we have a few opportunities to sort of destroy the life cycle or break the life cycle of the Japanese beetle. Because that's what it comes down to is you're not going to eliminate everything. You're not going to eliminate them all. Because the adult Japanese beetle will lay her eggs in the ground. The ground is where the the grubs come, and then the grubs start to eat on roots, plants' roots. So if you've got a lot of lawn, if you have a lot of lawn, turf grass, you've got a wonderful space to be cultivating Japanese beetle larvae. It's no problem for them to grow under there. They've got all the food they need. They've got the water from the plants. And then, of course, they become an adult, they emerge from the ground, and they start eating your plants. So you can, James in particular, start with the adults you have on site. Start with the adults you have on site. And what I do, to be honest, like with my edamame, I don't have many edamame plants. If I had a bunch, I may have to use a chemical. Uh, But you can always start by using your hands, using your fingertips, and collecting the individual beetles, which may be kind of gross for some people, I get it, I will actually collect them in my hand and squish them between my fingers because I love them so much. (laughs) No, that is pretty gross. That is pretty gross. You may want to wear gloves or whatnot, but you don't have to squish them in between your fingers. I just do it for the fun (laughs) and the satisfaction of destroying those Japanese beetles. But you can carry along with you when you're picking these bugs off of your leaves a bucket full of soapy water. It doesn't have to be full, just maybe halfway full with soapy water. You throw your insect adults inside of that soapy water and they will die. Uh, They will drown. Now, you can use some organic chemical controls. I should say organic chemical. It's not really chemical. It is a bacteria. It's biological warfare called spinosad. You can spray your plant with spinosad, which is going to be uh, a bacteria that gets in the side inside of insects and gives them infection, and they die. You can use some chemistry like permethrin or bifenthrin. They work very well. Uh, But don't spray the flowers unless the Japanese beetles are going for your flowers. Most of the time, they'll be going for leaves, but I do know on roses, they go crazy for the flowers. We just don't want to be using chemicals on plants that may be good pollinators, like butterflies, bees. They may be frequenting those flowers. But on most roses, they're not great pollinator plants. 
especially roses with a ton of flowers and petals. They just can't get into the center where the nectar is. So regardless, you can use some chemicals. Now, the other thing to think about is trying to break the life cycle of this plant, uh, of this plant, break the life cycle of this pest by going after the grub. So you may treat your lawn and your garden spaces with some chemistry uh, or organic chemistry that is going to disrupt the larval stage of your creepy crawly Japanese beetle grubs. Um, Trying to prevent them from emerging from the earth is going to be another way to slow them down or stop them, uh, allowing them to, you know, die off pretty early after they've hatched from an egg underground. That would be another way to go. Um, I will say that grubs, the Japanese beetle grubs, make great food for moles because moles eat plant roots, but they also are uh, carnivores. They're an, they're an omnivore, I guess. They eat plants and they eat um fresh meat, (laughs) but they will go for Japanese beetle grubs. The moles will eat Japanese beetle grubs. So if you've got a mole problem, you may be wise to try to eliminate your grub problem because the grubs are going to encourage the moles to just prolificate, reproduce, continue to thrive in your garden. But I will say if you have a mole problem, they may be solving some of your grub problem. And, you know, that's the thing about trying to deal with pests in the landscape, there's usually something that is going to help destroy or control another pest. But when it comes to things that are invasive, like, say, kudzu and wisteria, those plants that take over the woods, and then, of course, in the insect world, like the Japanese beetle, and, of course, I'm seeing a lot of baby East Asian Joro spiders right now in the fall time, late summer. They're going to become big and nasty, but they are starting to grow right now. You know, that's the thing with the the difference, of course, is that things, insects or, or plants that are invasive, they have very little control. So it may take you and me and efforts. And if you don't think that you can get out and control those Japanese beetles, well, Eden Rose give says, it go. give it a go. Just get out there and try to get rid of those Japanese beetles and, of course, any invasive species that may exist. Well, for New Southern Garden and WRWH 93.9 FM, I'm Nathan Wilson. Thanking you for your questions. Now stay well and grow well this weekend. See you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.